0: Turn your architectural designs into stunning immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture, dive into the new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people, Who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect? Steve Del Orto, welcome
1: to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you having me today.
0: Steve Del Orto is the founder and CEO of Concentric, a pre-construction platform that is transforming the fractured pre-construction environment by unifying data, people and processes. As a 26 year construction industry veteran who has lived and breathed the world of delivering pre-construction projects, Steve is uniquely positioned to bring digital transformation to the industry. Steve, I checked out Concentric and see what you're doing there. And I'm super interested in learning how that got started, what you're doing, how you want to take that company and shift the way that buildings are being built. And so I want to dive into that. I want to understand the story of Concentric. And if anybody's looking for it, it's Concentric with no E. So if you're looking for it, it's concentric.com. You can go check out the website while we're having a conversation here. But Steve, I'd love to have that conversation, but I want to know more about you first. I want to understand where you came from, where you started, what your origin story is. When did you discover your passion for what you do today?
1: And maybe who or what inspired you to get started on your path? Good question. Being involved in the construction industry, especially on the commercial side, literally, I think, was just call it serendipity. I had always, I mean, I'm going back to high school. I had an uncle who was extremely handy. My father was, I would say, moderately handy. If he's listening to this, he's going <laughs> to laugh. But- Hi, Dad. you know building the old soapbox cars and stuff like that just you know basic carpentry was something that i just immediately rushed to but in high school you know whether it was coaches lacrosse coach that i worked for that had a millwork company that built fine cabinetry for law firms whatnot in the dc washington dc market you know gained more and more of an appreciation for you know the craft The coordination that went into things being both in the shop, building it, as well as installing it. I got exposed to a little bit of the process, you know, from that perspective as a subcontractor, a grunt working for a subcontractor, and then there's the general contractor coordinating all of this stuff. And then, you know, I was in college and I took a class through the architecture school, even though I was well, technically civil engineering, then moved into economics, but still there was something drawing me into construction. So there was this construction management 101 class that I took and just hearing a little bit more of the formalities behind the process of managing construction projects. And I know I'm boring everybody here, but literally No, you're
0: talking to architects, so you're
1: not boring anybody. So the professor said, hey, I work closely with this company that is in town building two of the largest projects in Charlottesville, Virginia. And if anybody's up for a field trip, raise your hand and I'll get it pulled together. Yeah. I looked around and nobody was raising their hand. And I just, (laughs) I don't know, I just didn't want to be the one guy that raised their hand. So I just went up to his name was Professor Howe, Joe Howe. And I went up to the professor and said, hey, I'd be really interested. So he goes, great. You know, meet me at such and such. So I go and meet him at the one project and the executive that was running that project just happened to be walking out of the gate, knew Joe Howe, said, hey, professor, how are you doing? And he looked at me, introduced himself. He goes, are you here for the internship? I said, well, (laughs) not exactly. I'm here just for a field trip with Professor Howe, but sure, I'd be interested. Told me to come back the next day, did some kind of interview. I can't even remember if it lasted 15 minutes. And then I was hired as an intern and this was my... I think it was my junior year in college. So I wound up working and then moving into a full-time position with the company that I wound up working for for 26 years. So it was a a great story. The power of raising your hand. Yeah. Or not. Or not. It depends selectively (laughs) when. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I got started and you know, learned a lot, built a fabulous... My very first project was the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Wow. The entire expansion of that business graduate business campus emulated a lot of the Jeffersonian classic architecture. And Robert Stern was the architect. So learned an incredible amount, you know, just the architecture and all of the, you know, classical, Ionic, all of the I'm not doing it any justice, but just learning the architectural, say styles, categories, etc. know yeah. Spending time in R.M. Stern's office in New York City. It was just Fantastic experience for somebody who hadn't even graduated from college yet. Yeah, that's really amazing that you had that opportunity.
0: And so, mostly educational work or all types of commercial work?
1: No, I mean, just out of coincidence, my first two projects happened to be one for the University of Virginia, the next one for the University of Maryland. But I think it was the project at University of Maryland that actually really helped me appreciate the power of just bringing people together. Because at that time, this is the early 90s, and our industry was still very much in that hard bid, design, bid, build, which yielded a lot of litigious projects, a lot of confrontation and contentiousness. It was just kind of the later days of that era, and people started to wake up from that point forward saying, you know, there's got to be a better, easier way to go through life building projects than kind of fighting among everybody over, you know, the last penny. So it was that second job that really opened my eyes to how much better things can be. And if you just extend yourself, most others will extend themselves. Right. And, you know, it's just that power of positivity, if you will, bringing people together for, you know, what should be is the focus on the project. And, you know, through that project among many, when you do that, you see that with a project first mentality. And I'm not talking about giving away the farm and bankrupt over this. But ultimately, if you are working for the interests of the project, everybody's going to come out a winner and just try to put that into practice as much as I possibly could throughout my career. So
0: how did you work your way through that company? If you started as an intern and then 26 years, you said you were there, mm-hmm. what was the evolution of your responsibility there and how... Did that evolution allow you to sort of pursue that idea of bringing people together where you had more responsibility and more control over making that happen?
1: Well, evolution, the funny story, was like back when I was an intern, they made me a full-time employee. And this was in the early 90s when there was a recession. I had friends literally taping dozens of rejection letters. Yep. And that's when I started architecture school. I still
0: have the 100 rejection letters that I
1: received in the mail that summer. Exactly. So, you know, I get this internship, and then that same executive that hired me approached me one day and he's like, Hey, you know, I'd love to convert you to a full time employee if you're interested. And I said, Well, I haven't even, I'm not even hardly into my senior year. That would mean working full time and going to school full time with full credit load, but I can handle it. So he did that. And then, Moved up the ladder, and I think yeah. we may have had a beer in the future. And I was like, hey, so Jeremy, why did you convert me? And he goes, you're just costing me too much money in overtime as a hourly <laughs> paid employee. But however I got it, you know, I yeah moving up the ladder, it was about, for me and where I've ended up on that project, we were considered kind of in a remote area, remote region from the main headquarters. And so we had to mm-hmm. identify and bid chase and bid our own work to just try to make a go of this you know splinter region if you will and that gave me immediate right out of the gate both project management experience on the project that i was assigned to but also in the bid room chasing the work so i got immediate access and experience in a great opportunity for a young builder but along the way it was just about practicing my craft, not rushing it. You know, I think these days there's a lot of focus on advancing to the next title, whether or not you're ready. I dealt with that a lot before I, you know, moved over into what I do now. But, you know, back then I just head down and try to master everything I could and absorb everything I could. And it paid off. I moved up and just took on more and more responsibility managing projects. And, then you know, I moved to the West Coast and got involved in these Massive projects and then small renovation, repositioning projects of, you know, hospitality, you know, hotels and resorts, that kind of thing. All the same company? All the same company. I was with the same company the whole time. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I can't even peg when, but it was the early 2000s where I started to transition. And I had a great mentor on the West Coast that was very inclusive, you know, just said, Hey, look, I've got this new budding region. You know, looked at me among a couple of others like, Hey, you're the future leadership and be a part of the business planning process be a part of getting the work being a part of leading how to set the work up you know from a budget perspective and the early phases of pre-con and then going out and running the work and being responsible for that client relationship and so we grew and scaled the region pretty rapidly and a lot of that was um you know, both a learning experience for me, but also a leadership experience for me really guiding that process. So it yielded great results. I mean, ultimately from the mid 2000s, you know, within, well, let's see, mid to late 2000s, within five years, we had scaled from $600 million a year to hit the $2 billion mark and had expanded from one office to at that time, two. And then as I Was leading the region, expanded and formalized to additional offices. So we grew and sustained to that $2.2 billion mark over about five years, increased our margins by over 40%, which is saying something in construction when you're dealing with low single digit margins. You know, if you can move the needle that much, it definitely makes a difference. But a lot of that had to do with the focus that I had, you know, I'm not gonna take credit, it's always a team effort. Yeah, of course. Just really saying, hey, look, we have got to focus and quite honestly take advantage of the opportunity in the front end of the business. If we set the table better, we're eliminating the risks that, you know, traditionally cause a lot of fee erosion. The owner relationship is gonna be better. Their outcome ROI on that asset is gonna be better. And the design team is also going to be better. They're going to have a design at the end of the process that looks like what they envisioned, and we're so excited about at the beginning, without having it be so compromised and whittled down, you know, through some of the negative reactionary processes that people fall, you know, trapped to. So yeah, we really, really honed in on how to better set the table. And we were doing a lot of design build work. So this was done in partnership with our design partners, and it yielded great success. And the unfortunate thing in our industry is that it really is an individual level effort. It comes down to the person and their level of experience and creativeness and whatever. Very little of this is supported by a consistent process And it certainly isn't supported by a tech-enabled, consistent process. And that's what we started to slam up against, you know, to scale and have repeatable, scalable success. Just relying on people to do it is just not a recipe for good, positive growth. Things break down. People are overburdened and overworked as it is. And then you pile on additional studies or analytics or stuff that they have to do literally by hand it's just untenable but anyway more on that later
0: yeah well it sounds like that when you moved to the west coast you started that type of work was there an evolution of delivery of project delivery where it was design build originally and then you started working more in design build you mentioned that you did a lot of projects in design build was that in order to deliver better projects and more profit and better relationships with people? Or what was the reason to move to design build?
1: Well, besides design build, there were also like the CM at risk, you know, it was more about collaborative deliveries and those can take. Right, different okay. Shapes.
0: So there's different types of yeah. deliveries, but they were all more focused on collaborating among the team.
1: Right. Because the hard bid is just set up as a race to the bottom. Whoever's going to craft a way to commit to the least amount of scope, based on how they read the drawings. And then, you know, then you inevitably, whether on purpose or not, you're just dealing with change orders and claims. And it just gets, it's a hard way to make a buck.
0: Yeah.
1: The whole idea of just moving into a more diversified portfolio and the industry was moving in that direction. You know, I like to think we're a little bit at the forefront of doing it, but, you know, today I think they're forecasting like by The middle of this decade, which are fast approaching, about eighty-seven percent of all projects will be done with some form of collaborative delivery. So that just shows you how hard that pendulum has swung, and it's not showing any signs of swinging back. So people just want to work as a team. They want to, you know, have shared success. Everybody wants to contribute, and it's just a function of how do you enable that and how do you unlock that ability for people to come together and. Do what they really want to do but right now there's just a lot of friction and barriers and it's just challenging not to say people aren't doing it; it's just taking way more effort than it should
0: yeah and you talked about earlier that technology has a lot to do with the solution for that The struggles right you just sort of keep hitting a wall because you don't have the tools that you need in order to do the things that you really see must be done in order to overcome those things which i'm assuming is what the inspiration for Concentric was. Can you share the story of how you went from that 26-year career to jumping, right? Jump. You're the founder of a tech company, right? So now you went through this transition and evolution from construction to tech, obviously in the construction world. But what was the inspiration? And share that story of sort of making that jump from one to the other. (laughs)
1: kind of necessity is the mother of all invention, they say, and I just literally was sitting in too many of these meetings where not having the data, not having a process that was visible and tangible, you know, that everybody else could buy in and have trust in, you know, I could just almost be a fly on the wall, you know, as I sat in with my project teams and their meetings and engagements with their customer, their client, and the design team, and you can just kind of see the challenges of the communication. Nobody was coming to the table with ill will, Right, but you shouldn't expect people automatically just trust what anybody else is saying. And the fact that it couldn't be supported with anything that did look like a pretty sound process, the data, you could just see, I put myself in the client's shoes. I put myself in the designer's shoes, looking at this going, you know what? There's a big communication gap and putting myself in my team's shoes Expect them to do more. I mean, it was just too challenging for all the project meetings that they're constantly running to to have the time to compile all of this data. And this is just very manual. It's all in a pretty analog state. So, you know, you just have this unfortunate situation stakeholders around the table doing the very best they can, but yeah, incredibly wasteful. And I just said, there is a smarter way. I know what it is. And you know, my choice was whatever time I have left in my career, 15, 20 years, am I going to keep running on this broken treadmill? And I just said, no, I can't. I can't. So I left. It was a leap, a jump. I never looked back because I had a couple of good people in my network where from the startup and technology side, not having to do with my industry. I just said, Steve, look, building a technology company is not any different than the company you've been building. You don't know how to do the structural engineering for the Salesforce tower or the Golden State Warriors arena or any of the projects you've built, but you knew how to build a team and you knew how to set the vision and you kind of worked the whole plan to end result. And you can do that in software, just like you can do with a building. And they were right. I mean, once I jumped in and got a feel for it, you know, it's not easy. And I don't think anybody can just do it, but at the same time, it's doable. And it was a far easier, say, translation or transition yeah. that I had to make from that business to this business. But, you know, the great thing, and I think it is a strength of our company, is just that deep domain expertise, which makes all the difference in the world with technology. Is, you know, anybody can build software to solve somebody's problems. It takes a lot of time to learn about the other person's problems and the business case and even the business that you're in. If you're from outside of that given industry, I don't know how people do it, but from within living and breathing these workflows and processes, and not just from my contractor perspective, but from the designer perspective and the owner perspective, which I spent a decent enough time with them to have an appreciation for Yeah. building something that balances all three of their needs and the perspectives with that project first focus has been very rewarding. You know it's really interesting to be able to take all of these ideas and with the, through our team bring them to life see them work you know not everything you dream up in your head actually right. work yeah. but to actually see it work and then the validation from the market saying you know there are a couple options out there they do one thing you know whatever but when they see what we're doing not only what we have today and how fast we've built it to, but to appreciate the roadmap and the vision going forward And to see how excited they are, there's no more rewarding feeling. It's pretty fantastic. Let's
0: take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like rcat.com is so important. Rcat works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use Rcat's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try arcat.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entre Architect Network. Since 2013, Entre Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entre Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us, and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit entrearchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entre Architect Network today, the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at entrearchitect.com. Did you have the idea for Concentric before you left or did you leave knowing that this problem needs to be solved? I'm gotten to a point in my career in construction that I'm, I'm going to take what I've learned. I'm going to go build this idea that I have. I don't know what it is. Where did the idea for Concentric come from or where in the timeline did the idea for Concentric come from?
1: Now nah, there was the need and the frustration that was the motivation. Just want to solve the problem. The solution had not crystallized. I left. Yeah. You know, and then we had COVID around the time that I left too. So, you know, with all the shutdowns and all of the disruption to our entire lives, I timed up research and prototype and talk to people and validate. So, you know, took full advantage of that time frame. So that way we yeah. kind of emerged from the pandemic at least what we were dealing with at the time. And business came back. You know, I had a lot of knocks on the door. Hey, you know, I know you were talking about Concentric.
0: Yeah.
1: We're needing to do things differently. We've learned our lesson. You know, we had small contractors that were still using on-premise software. They hadn't done anything to move into the cloud. And so that was a massive shock for them. You had just the virtual interactions. I mean, think about, you know, full well, you're in a room You can pin up all of the drawings. You can have a very productive in-person charrette and really get a lot of stuff done. Trying to do that virtually through Zoom may not be better or worse. I don't know, but it's definitely different. And it's not as productive, I found, from just that ideation and all of the stuff that occurs when you're together. So something needed to be done to at least make that more productive and so you know got a lot of knocks on the door which told me it was time and we've been steady at it since yeah so
0: good timing a good location right you're in san francisco
1: Yep. probably no
0: better place in the world to start a tech company and so you jump with support from friends saying hey this can happen you can do this let's go do this i love that part of the story yeah. that you just jumped and said, okay, we're going to just go do this, figure it out. So tell me, what does Concentric do? Like from an architect's point of view, somebody on the design team, what does it do and how does it help the construction process?
1: Yeah. So again, as the first holistic platform, yeah, which is critical because forget about the term pre-construction, which I think people associate with the contractor. I mean, this is just literally the design phase from just the idea to when all of that you know design permitting budget procurement work is done and you have subs and you're swinging steel and pouring concrete that whole period there's a vast array of workflows and some of it you whip up an ad hoc spreadsheet you know from a designer's perspective i've seen the massive shift and transition into just the 3d design revit and all of those yeah. bentley and those products But a lot of the business side, you know, the design side is served by those great, you know, design tools. But how you manage process and how you manage the business from a designer's perspective, from the developer owner's perspective, and even from the contractor's perspective is just a big, big void, big white space filled only with ad hoc spreadsheets and an occasional point solution here or there. So what it does is first base trying to unite everybody, you know, if we can have a platform that as more and more stuff is built on the platform, bringing people into one place that they can do all of that work may not be with concentric built tools, but, you know, other tools that we interface with. But, you know, it's kind of crazy to have all of this data that the cost of the project, whether it's the hard cost or other elements, You coming up with what you think it is, and the GC has what they think it is, and the owner has their version of what they think it is, you know, it exists. And if you want the most reliable data, it would be the data that you're going to go to risk and go ultimately build. So, you know, why not draw from that instead of making up your own stuff? You know, it's kind of a bad example, but bringing everybody in. Yeah.
0: So you have a single source and you use the word truth on the website, a single source of truth that everybody is in agreement that what's on Concentric is the data. That's what we're all working on. The designers agree, the owners agree, the contractors agree, the subcontractors agree, everybody who is involved on the project from the point of the project starting, right, where the client starts hiring a team all the way to the point where you start breaking ground, right? That's the period of the process. So architects massively involved in that and contractors and in a collaborative process the contractors involved in that process as well going back and forth on costs and materials and methods and how this is going to be done a tool like this where everybody's looking at the same thing those efficiencies happen very quickly oh yeah as compared to okay who's got the drawings is that the most recent set of paper drawings exactly Nope, those are in my truck. Let me go down and get the.
1: I would walk the proverbial shop floor in the office back in the day and just observe what our estimators were up against in order to just do their given pre construction work. And a lot of their time was spent chasing down, hey, I've got to price something. I don't think I have the most current version of this. And they're emailing, calling, texting, whatever. The architect trying to get that, you know, the owner's calling, you know, our team for, hey, five o'clock on Friday, I need the most current estimate because I've got a big meeting with my lender I have to prepare for over the weekend. Everybody's like chasing information. And when you add it all up, I mean, I've had people tell me that they think their people are working as little as 30% over capacity to high highest 70% over capacity. And so that's nuts. At a time where we don't have enough people to meet the demand of all the things that are being built. And so the last thing you can afford is having your person take twice as long to do something than it should take. And arguably with technology, you know it's even a bigger double swing than that in terms of going from 2X to maybe 0.5X and getting a lot more bandwidth out of your team. This isn't about replacing people with technology. This is about augmenting them so that people yeah. can focus on what they need to focus on and what they do well as a human and even have a better work-life balance so that they can actually not have to work, you know, 15, 16-hour days to get something done. It's an Iron Man suit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I mean, back to your point, what we see, we've been building the platform now for seven months. So we've built an incredible amount in a very short period of time. And we're already having conversations with, I just had one last week with, a big global name architect, and you know, was talking with their technical steering committee, and they were super interested and fascinated with the idea that they could jump into a platform, have a conversation as a team with the builder, the developer, and have prior project data brought forward, normalized, and showcased as hey, this is a reliable target point for yeah. us to focus. How to drive the facade costs or how to drive a mechanical cost by the proper selection of systems before we even put, you know, lines on paper. Because that's the unfortunate thing. Everybody just throws random, round numbers at things, typically probably a little high. And then you got to work really hard to constantly wind and unwind what you're drawing and in a reactive state to get there incredibly inefficient incredibly financially taxing for firms and yeah you know what's the upside you have a grand vision that gets whittled down into something less it's a horrible process that everybody has to endure and you know i always felt you know a lot of empathy for the design team because as a design builder we had a little bit more control of the overall project and engagement but without process You know, we were doing moderately better than the traditional way, but because there was just a little bit more sharing, but it just wasn't very convenient. And, you know, I think all the stakeholders don't quite appreciate the needs and the way things are consumed by the other. You know, an estimator rattling off a lot of facts and figures and whatnot out of the estimate, you know, arguably just doesn't resonate with a designer. But what we would do, selectively because it took a lot of effort our people would do a great thorough job using like on-screen takeoff and they would literally in a very organized way color code the assumptions they were making without having design information on finishes and you know this is what i'm assuming here this is what i'm assuming there and then when we would print these colored pdfs and make a binder and then hand it to the design team and say hey look at least be guided by this huge amount of effort. Just transmitting that thing and keeping it up to date as an additional effort. But it made a big impact for the designer to really understand, okay, you know, I've got whatever dowel, you know, tile level two that I can place in these bathrooms based on what I'm seeing here. And so they were able to more effectively truly design to a given dollar figure. But most people, if you're getting it at all, they're just shoving the estimate to you, which is not organized in a way that I think design teams can do anything with. And so you just got these fundamental miscommunications or lack of understanding. But I think a platform with what we're developing and what I was talking to the steering committee about was, you know, how do we take and enable a lot of the sharing of that information while protecting everybody's sensitive pieces of that information, but 80, 90% of the project information You know isn't sensitive or proprietary within the team why shouldn't people be able to rely on it have access to it enhance it and not have to create their own version of what they think the truth is to get their job done so i'm excited for as we continue to grow and expand to be you know also building what the design community would want and need to address the business and process side of what you do not touching the design and you know yeah three-dimensional design but and just things like tracking design ideas and issues you know people are creating design issue logs they're creating quality control you know okay does this meet the definition of a 100 percent dd set and uh, typically we would find the architect who's Stamping the set of drawings wants to make sure that they're, you know, yep, that's included, that's included. This complies the code, blah blah blah. But without a system, that is a manual process that might not be consistently or conveniently followed by the team each and every time. And I think that can be greatly solved and enhanced, and maybe in some ways automated.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Certainly automated a lot of it in the future, if not current. Mm -hmm. In terms of the market that you've chosen pre-construction was that a strategic decision or was that just you know that was the idea you know let's focus on pre-construction and that's it what does the next couple of years look like for concentric
1: you know if you do look at the landscape of the technology that exists and if you break down the life cycle of a project you have three arguably four you know segments of its life you've got just the early, early phase that is prior to any architect or designer getting involved. It's just the idea, it's the pre-pre-construction. But, you know, that even involves just advertising and and going through some kind of a selection process before anybody's doing any pre-construction work, whether it's the architect or the builder. But then you do have that design phase, that pre-construction phase, and then you have the actual construction phase. And then I like to remind people not to forget about the call it the last phase, which is the operation and maintenance of asset
0: post-construction.
1: Post-construction. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on the construction phase, be it project management platforms, or there's no shortage of of apps and stuff to do things that, you know, safety and all of that. But what you don't see at all is much of anything in this pre-construction space. You know, there's always advancements with Revit three-dimensional design. And we've seen a couple point solutions pop up to address how you bid to the subcontractor market as an example. Yeah. And we have some very good, reliable estimating calculator software, but you know, that's just one of these ecosystems in the vast array of ecosystems. And the rest of it is white space. And it was always the area I was most passionate about anyway, even though I was a project manager and running you know, construction phase projects, but I knew that the greatest impact you can have, and it's not to one company's profitability, but the greatest impact you can have that even shapes whether a project is a go or a no-go altogether, you know, is at the front end of the process. And so nothing there. It's a passion. It's just the logical place that Concentric is hyper-focused and just building that out because it's so underserved. There's so much that does need to be addressed that you know we'll have a full plate for a while, but we also see incredible, I mean, that's a little bit of the spirit of the name concentric in that what we do as a platform with just benefiting the project, just think about the concentric rings on a 360 degree basis, the benefit or the power is shared and amplified by you know even secondary or tertiary stakeholders. But you know, ultimately, with more data, with more structured process, yields higher degree of confidence, higher degree of accuracy in, you know, taking a given risk for that amount of money, whatever the case may be, I have full conviction that we will drastically reduce the perceived cost of a project by the elimination of just all those built you know, suspenders and tight-fitting pants of contingencies on top (laughs) of contingencies to where, you know, the the cost of these projects are, I don't want to say artificially inflated, but, you know, it's fear money. It's the the fear exactly creeps into the pro forma. And if we can get rid of a lot of that, there will always be needs for contingencies. But if it can be drastically reduced without anybody taking additional risk, think about how many housing projects, how many educational facilities, how many healthcare facilities could be built that today in the status quo are deemed you know non-viable because it's just beyond the tipping point on the pro forma. It's as simple as, that. Yeah. you know, yeah. it's the tipping point on the pro forma. And if we can get everything below that tipping point, we can build out a heck of a lot more. So, yeah, I love living in the time that we're living. I've
0: started architecture before computers are really, a primary tool for architecture. My first job was on a drafting board. I was the first one in my studio to start using CAD. And then we watched BIM happen. And now we're seeing new technology solutions shifting the way our built environment is constructed. And it's just going to get more efficient and more effective and just make the world better. It's exciting to have lived through that process of where we are today and to see where we're going in the future at such an exciting time and to hear a story like yours a student who gets this internship because you (laughs) raised your hand and the journey that you went through for 26 years you know building some of the biggest buildings on the west coast to starting a tech company right i'm sure when you got that first job Starting a tech company was not on the list of possibilities.
1: No, They didn't even have email when I was first starting my first yeah. job, I think. So, it's, yeah, to be involved in technology to this degree is kind of mind blowing.
0: <laughs> it's such a great story, motivational, inspirational. I appreciate you coming by here and sharing this story. Before we go, I would love to get your take on the question that I ask all my guests. You've essentially built one company, you know, the construction company, when you launched the the West Coast division of it, so you built it from scratch to multi-billion dollar company. Now you're starting a new company. What would you say to the listeners who are primarily small firms? What can they do today, right now, to build a better business for tomorrow?
1: Mm, that is a good question. I think I would fall back on what is always my tried and true magic equation, which is, you know, talent plus technology is going to help you achieve success on that. Two things there. One, you know, always be bullish on talent. You know, if you find somebody, even though it might not be the best timing budget-wise, or you may not even have something immediately for them to go to work on. If you see somebody that has the kind of the hunger and the fire in the belly and the talent and motivation, scoop them up because I think they're going to open doors and create opportunities. And, you know, if you can string a few of those folks together and create a team, it's going to take you way past anything you think you can do on your own. But secondly, I think to your point that you made a minute ago, it's these are exciting times. And I think, you know, the workforce that is coming on either this younger generation, or the current generation that's really taking the reins of a lot of these, organizations are coming from more of that tech generation. And so there's an expectation that, you know, you're not going to do it the old fashioned way and you may not even do it the same way for too long because it's expected to be changed, disrupted, whatever. But I think don't shy away from it. Don't say, well, you know, that's the flavor of the month or we've got to do it this way because it's the proven way. I think having a more open mind and embracing new ways of doing things. And I think you're, Talented team will have a strong voice and opinion on. So people of like our generation need to kind of get out of their way, right? Yeah. and Just let them, give them the vision, give them the leadership, be there to support. But in many cases, just set them up for success and get out of their way and just be almost like guardrails on the highway, just making sure they don't make an extreme left and drive off a cliff. But if they can kind (laughs) of stay on the straight and narrow, even if they bounce around a little bit, you're still moving pretty fast and going far. Great advice. Talent
0: plus technology equals success. I love it. That's a great answer. His name is Steve Del Orto. The company is Concentric. Just leave off the E in Concentric. So it's concntric.com is the company. It's concentric.com is the website. Go check them out. Super interesting things they're doing over there at Concentric. Steve, I appreciate you for doing what you're doing, for being on the job and building some of these buildings that the world lives and plays and works in. And then taking a leap, jumping, having an idea, seeing an opportunity to make the world better through technology. I appreciate you for doing that. And I appreciate you for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Mark. This has been an honor and a pleasure. And, you know, it also kind of turned that around and, you know, your audience. This whole thing takes a community. And like I said, it's about the project. And if we've solved it for the project, all the stakeholders win. So I invite and encourage the design community and the following of the podcast here to be a part of this. So reach out and do check us out. But you know, definitely, we'd love to be able to rely on you for feedback and input and be a part of our development. So appreciate the opportunity, Mark.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Is there a place, a specific place you'd like them to go to connect with you? Or should they just go to the website? Is there a good way to connect with you directly? Email or or is there a contact form?
1: Oh, yeah. If they want to reach out to me directly, it's steve at com. But if they want to just check out the website and even book a demo, they can do that through our website too. But yeah. Whatever's easiest, but we'll All right. talk to you.
0: We'll have links to all of that stuff and your email on the show notes. Awesome. Thanks for coming by, appreciate you. Thanks, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com members, that's G-A-B-L, Media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate to expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure, a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 US jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more today at ncarb.org.
1: I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level
0: Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from
1: napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening... Stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. The one that God. came out of nowhere. They come out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it.
0: Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.